0: years of visiting Europe as a Roman Catholic priest to my recent visit to Europe as a Bible believer in April and May of this year. When I went to Europe as a Catholic priest during the 22 years I was a priest, it was mostly and nearly absolutely as part of that institution where all our meals were guaranteed and we're always guaranteed a place to stay and where the unwritten rule was we did not talk shop. That is, we did not talk anything religious because that was our work and our social life was never about anything spiritual. You would be reprimanded and told you were talking shop how different this was from my recent visit to Europe among believers where they wanted to talk about the Lord and our social life and our whole life was to exalt the Lord of glory and his gospel. And that is a summary of what happened in April and May. I think it is summarized in the words of the Lord in 2 Corinthians, for God commanded his light to shine out of darkness, had shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And that is what I sensed very strongly was that the power and the excellency was of God. To use this earthenware vessel to proclaim his word and to see a fateful remnant, the nation of Poland in London and in my own Ireland. Now, the major contrast that I wish to make tonight and that I will shortly be getting to is the contrast of what I saw as a priest regarding the situation, the political situation in Europe when I visited during my 22 years. Most of that time was at the initial stage of what at that time was called the European Economic Community. This visit was at the prelude before there was revealed to the world the new constitution of the European Union. And the setting up of the European Union to be the major superpower in the world with the most resources and the most inhabitants or citizens. And so what I was sensing regarding this European Union, as it is now being shaped, is the major substance of tonight's talk. But before I get to that, I want to give a little resume of the... uh, Outreach, the mission outreach that I had among the believers in these different parts of Europe Poland, London, and in my own Ireland. It was multifaceted in a certain sense. It was this Bible believing church praying together in the Lord, and it was the sensing of the presence of the Lord and the power in His gospel with other people involved in our ministry, and it was the sensing of the, the power and majesty of God going forth in the gospel. It began on April the 18th as I arrived in Warsaw, the capital of Poland, and I was taken immediately to an apartment complex of the wolskis Mike and Peggy, and there on the first evening gathered believers. I was amazed that for the most part they were every one of them out of the Roman Catholic Church and on fire to give the gospel to Roman Catholics. That was a nedifying evening for me to begin with, seeing even recent converts who I knew were already ministering the gospel unto others. The next day, as we were getting ready to go on the streets to hand out tracts and to witness, as we were traveling to the main square outside one of the subways where we were to evangelize, I noticed a man carrying a wicker basket in his hand, and I asked, Wolski in the car, what is this? What's the meaning of this? This man carrying a small wicker basket. And he told me it was glorious Saturday, that is the Saturday before what Catholics call Easter Sunday. And he was taking the eggs to the church to have them blessed by the priest. And then I looked around and I see a whole lot of families moving towards different churches with little baskets in their hand. And I was really taken aback at this ritualism of middle-aged people going off with little baskets in their hand to a priest to have them blessed. And in a certain sense, that typified or symbolized what I was to see in my whole 10 days in Poland of the huge, mass of Catholic churches, their statues, their idolatry, and their ritualism, typifying empty religious rites and rituals which have enslaved a people, and most of that nation of about 39 million people. It was on Sunday the 20th that I had the opportunity to share my testimony and the church of Pastor Wolski and his Baptist church in Warsaw. And after I had given my testimony and uh, an invitation or a urge to, to motivate the people anew to witness to Catholics, I was really taken back by the prayers that were being said. I was having them translated for me. And I could understand that the substance of the prayers of these people in this church were that they would reach out in love and compassion. And I sensed the motivation of the people in the prayers that they prayed. Again, most of them former Catholics with a great desire to reach out in love to the Roman Catholics. What I had seen even in those early days from the first Saturday in Warsaw was one believer only two years out of Catholicism, there on the streets proclaiming publicly the gospel, as others gave out tracts and others talked to individual Polish people about the things of the Lord. It was on Monday the 21st that I was in a small city called Olson, and I was there to give a three-day conference. I began, and there were 70 Catholic people present, besides a good many others. I could, in a certain sense, feel that there were melting hearts, and afterwards, when some of these people spoke to some of the pastors' presence and the Christian leaders, and some of them spoke to me through translators. I was amazed that the Lord seemed definitely to be drawing people onto himself. And then in the afternoon, in my second presentation, one of the topics I addressed was that of idolatry, and particularly of pictures of Jesus and of the very popular Jesus video, and I was quite amazed at the the defense that was being made, not just on the part of Catholics, but of, of so-called Bible believers for the Jesus video, so much so that one of the pastors came and took over one of the second mics and began, as it were, preaching rather than asking me questions of the necessity to have pictures of Christ and videos of Christ and it it was a long hard battle however i sense that at the end of it we had i think for the most part people seeing that it is not right not only not to have jesus hanging on a cross pictorially in a chapel or in a person's living room but to do so by video is equally horrendous and that we do not use idolatry to portray the gospel message of the lord one of the greatest joys to me was the book that we have produced in polish far from rome near to god the testimonies of 55 Converted Catholic Priests. We have more in the Polish edition than in the English edition. It was amazing how people treasure this book. Men and women would bring the book to me and they would show to me that it was specially covered. And they would talk about how they loaned out the book to others and how the book was treasured and how the Lord had used that book to bring souls to himself. It was while I was in Poland that we finished the sales of the second printing of the book. It is now out of print. And I'm praying that somehow we get the necessary funds that we are able again to reprint the book that is so needed and has been so well received. Our first printing of 3,000 copies sold completely out in the first four months that it was published in Poland. The main speaking that I did was a conference in Warsaw from April the 24th to the 26th. We estimated that we had 55 people in attendance each evening. And it was here that while the majority of Catholics in Poland and in England, And in Ireland, the majority of Catholics are not interested either in biblical Christianity or in Catholicism itself while they still practice some sort of rituals. Their greatest interest is in materialism. While that is so, we still had the remnant, as it were, searching, coming to these meetings. And it was a a real joy to see the Lord open up hearts and minds, particularly when the sessions were over and we had the question time. It was very difficult to conclude some of these sessions. Some of the sessions went on for over two and a half hours before we got into informal questions when we were outside the conference room in the foyer. It was just amazing how people were really searching for the truth, that is in God's word and in Christ Jesus alone. And here I am very thankful to my sending church and to the prayers of the faithful here present and to others of our church. I really sense the power of prayer and of being united in a mission that I was doing, but it really was this church that was there as I could see the Lord opening hearts and minds people who had been controlled by drink and who had been controlled and trapped in materialism and in all types of worldly endeavors while in their Romanism were seeing the light of the glorious gospel of Christ Jesus. And I really am lost for words to explain just the different testimonies and that I got as different people spoke to me after those three sessions on those three evenings. On leaving Warsaw, I landed in London and I was met by Michael the Semlian and taken to his home and Donna, his wife, and Michael served me some good meals and also we had great spiritual meals together discussing the spiritual condition of London and England. And after meeting with them, I met with Andrew Price, who is really the leader of the different pastors in what is called the Church of England Continuing. He is the editor together with Peter Radcliffe of the English Churchman that represents the voice of those reformed people inside the Church of England that are still standing on the solid biblical principles of the 39 Articles. It is amazing while thousands upon thousands of Anglican churches have gone under that there are still six churches that are standing. And I got speaking in three of those six remaining churches of what is called the Church of England Continuing. Bible believers still standing amid the materialism and empty of present, modern-day London and who have escaped the false ecumenism that is rampant in London and in the rest of England. These brothers truly ministered to me in the deepest, truly ecumenical way where we're one in the Lord. And it was most edifying to hear the stories of their witnessing at Walsingham and other different Catholic and Anglican shrines there in England, and of their hands-on witnessing, and of their fearful proclamation of the gospel in Christ Jesus alone, by faith alone, and by God's grace alone. I had the privilege of meeting with Dr. Peter Masters of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. As you probably know, He stands in the shoes of where Spurgeon had stood. There still is a congregation of about a 1,000 people there every Lord's Day, every Sunday. And his work goes out right on the internet daily. And we can see on different DVD formats and CDs and other electronic media on the internet, we can see some of his preaching and teaching. It is quite interesting. I would refer you to his internet web page, www.metropolitantabernacle.org. It was after my week in London that I went to my own Ireland, and I had from May the 5th to the 9th with my own family, which was really a gracious time where I saw the Lord again answer the prayers of this church here in having hearts open to me and questions asked me that really set the stage for me in a very naturally supernatural way to give the gospel to different precious members of my own family. And then on May the 10th, I began work with Reformation Ireland, represented by Raymond Stewart, in what was to be An 800-mile outreach across Ireland, sharing the gospel of Christ Jesus the Lord. On May the 11th, I ministered in the Carrick-Fergus Congregational Church in the morning and in the evening to the Ballyclare Reformed Presbyterian Church. I had the privilege of meeting about 22 pastors as I addressed them at the Baptist Pastors Fraternal at the Cromwell Road uh, Baptist Church. On May the 14th, Raymond Stewart and myself were joined by Mark Fitzpatrick and we were to begin this long journey right across Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. And these men's zeal really ministered to me. When we stopped at different towns, they were there out witnessing to people, (laughs) giving out tracts. And uh, the zeal that they had for the Lord was not just when we reached the church, but even on the journey there. There was hardly a, a place that we stopped for a meal or where we stopped just for a rest that they were not ministering. And of course, I was along with them, ministering the gospel to different people that we met. And when we um, had different meetings They varied in size, from the smallest meetings in Ballantir in South Dublin and Mullingar, where we had 16 and 18 present, respectively, to the largest meeting we had in Donachy um, um, in in County Tyrone. That's near the famous town of Dungannon, where we had over 240 people present. I would urge you to read about Reformation Ireland as it tries again to bring back to what was called the Isle of Saints and Scholars, the true gospel message. And it is found on the internet on www.reformation.com. Extra special meeting was with 14 wonderful Catholics that seem to be really open to the gospel that I met at a a very personal meeting that we had in West Belfast. If you have been following at all Belfast on the news, you would know that West Belfast is the Catholic portion of Belfast. And it was there in West Belfast that we had 14 Catholic people present. And I got explaining my own testimony and the gospel. I got one or two very ecumenical replies, and then sweeping that aside with the gospel and what true ecumenism is, I really, again, sensed an openness and a real friendliness with those Catholic people to the things of the Lord. And I would pray that there would be continued... Fruit from this time as those meetings with those people continue there in that uh, home church setting there in West Belfast. We traveled right across southern Ireland and we went way out west to Ballyhatraheen. I bet you can't pronounce that. Ballyhatraheen is one of the smaller towns right in the west in County Roscommon. We had people come from as far as Bally Bunyan in Kerry and at Lone, which is in the center of Ireland. And it was really interesting because we had the only church in the city or town besides the Catholic Church. And it is a Reformed Baptist Church. And it's right in the middle of the town. There, It was packed full. And we had people coming to hear the word of the Lord. And I was just amazed, because having explained my testimony and the gospel and the differences between biblical faith and Catholicism, the questions went on and on. And we were rolling on to over two hours. And I'm wondering when the interest is going to stop. And still, the questions were coming. And somehow I felt that this thing must end and I saw in the congregation Peggy O'Neill. If you read our second book of the 50, uh, besides the 50 priests of the 20 former nuns, the truth set is free, Peggy O'Neill was a nun until she was 72 years old. She calls her testimony, I never heard the gospel as a nun. When I saw her that night, she was 82 years old and still looking sprightly. (laughs) So I suggested that she come forward and finish the presentation with a summary of her testimony. And she really had people in the palm of her hand. And she explained the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and the glories of the gospel as presented in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. She explained the imputed righteousness as clear as it is in her own testimony, but with a personality and a vibrancy that really touched hearts that night and was a fitting conclusion of the meeting. Next day I had the privilege of making a video with her. Mark Fitzpatrick did the camera work. Raymond Stewart gave the Irish setting and an introduction to show how this is a completely Irish thing that we are doing in context of Irish history and Peggy O'Neill gloriously explained her story on video, and that video, Lord willing, will go out here in Austin, Texas. It will go out in Long Island, in Traverse City, in Michigan, and in some other places in Arizona, and we hope in some other places as they open up to us on cable access. So we thank the Lord for Peggy O'Neill, and she really typified so many former Catholics who are now on Fire for the Lord. Peggy O'Neill, 82 years old and as sprightly as you could get. The time in Ireland was glorious. But what I was sensing in Ireland is what I had sensed in London. And what I had sensed most heavily was when I was in Poland. Poland is about to go into the European Union. And the Bible believers there are very concerned. They're very concerned for what the Union stands for and what the whole idea of the European Union is when it comes to Roman Catholicism. And so I'd like to give an overview of just what is happening worldwide with the Roman Catholic Church and the European Union in particular. Under the proposed new constitution of the European Union, which was already ratified last Friday, the 13th of June, we have Underneath this, what is called corpus juris. It's the legal name for the legal system to prosecute financial crimes against the Union. It will set up a European public prosecutor based on the continental inquisitorial model. And he is called an inquisitor himself he will have overriding jurisdiction throughout the European Union to instruct national judges to issue arrest warrants against suspects that they be held in custody for indefinite periods pending on investigations, or they can be transported to any part of the Union with no obligation whatsoever to produce uh, the evidence that there should be prosecution, and no public hearing given in the interim period. These cases are to be tried by special courts consisting of professional judges, excluding simple jurors and lay magistrates. These judges will be empowered to hand down sentences of up to seven years. The United Kingdom's unique judicial system like unto the United States is understanding that a man is innocent until he's proven guilty. He must be physically present to be tried, that is habeas corpus, and he can be tried by jury. All of this is overwritten in these proposed laws called corpus juris, that is to embody the European Criminal Court. Now, while this is only technically to do with the crimes against the financial, financial crimes against the Union itself, many people are fearing that this legislation embodies or shows forth the whole mindset behind all the laws of the Union, which laws and constitution have been very recently published. The present pope has insisted that the European Union will be declared Christian in its roots. The idea will perhaps be incorporated into the new uh, preamble to the Constitution that has still been worked out. Undoubtedly, the Pope means Roman Catholicism when he says Christian. And of course, this is how we'll see it defined as it will be lived out if so is in the draft, the the draft preamble to the Constitution. It was on Friday, May the 13th that the world was given the text of the the um, constitution of the European Union. There has been a lot of criticism and much comment on the different newspapers of the world and right across the internet. I would like to quote from the London Telegraph, quotation. To the strains of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, the convention on the future of Europe, proclaimed agreement yesterday on a written constitution of a vast European Union of 450 million citizens bringing together East and West. Valerie Gista de Justin, the chair of the 105 strong body, held up a text and he said that He offered it proudly to the prime ministers next week as a permanent settlement for a free and democratic family of nations. This result is imperfect, but it is more than could have been hoped, he said, trembling with emotion. We have sown a seed, and I'm sure that seed will grow and bring forth fruit. Europe's voice will be heard and respected on the international stage. Instead of a half-formed Europe, we have a Europe with a legal identity, with a single currency, a common justice, a Europe which is about to have its own defense there was no vote. Monsieur Gistard, famed for his autocratic style during the 16 months of stormy debates, simply discerned consensus among the members of parliament and the members of the European parliament and the national envoys. Very few were willing to spoil the party to cry foul. End of quotation. The way the Telegraph summarizes just what happened on Friday the 13th of June. The new constitution would give the European Union full legal personality and lays down that European law is to have primacy over the law of the member states. Further, it prohibits member states from legislating in most areas of national life. For example, agriculture, justice, energy, social policy, economic cohesion, transport, and the environment, on aspects of public health, unless the European Union chooses to waive its power. Eight convention members from the Democracy Forum, a network of euro-realists, they are called, argued that this did not fit together with the Laken... Declaration of December 2001. The Laken Declaration of 2001 was to establish principles whereby there would be democracy in Europe, solidarity, and equality. These opponents to the new Constitution point out that the new Constitution could make covert decisions and act on them accordingly. And they pointed out that the European Council and the President will centralize and sequester power and can intentionally bring a wider gap between the rulers and the ruled. And this is because the national parliaments in England under the new constitution would hand over most of their power to the European Council and to the permanent president that is to be set up of the European Union. This group of realists, that they are called, have proposed a minority report which they are insisting should be seen and looked at as the constitution is now to be ratified on June the 20th and 21st at Thessalonica in Greece, and is to be approved formally next year. While this minority report is printed and can be seen in different printed matter and on the internet, it is quite unlikely that the voice of these realists, as they call themselves, looking for some semblance of democracy or what was sovereignty of individual nations in Europe, that that would continue. It looks quite unlikely that their voice will be heard. It was their plea that the European Union would not be called European Union, but would be called Europe of Democracy, E.D. instead of E.U. But it is quite unlikely because of the, the um, popularity and the, auto, the autocratic power that G. star de Justin has been risen to as the framer and the one who has proposed to Europe their new law, and the enthusiasm in which he has sensed that this is accepted and he has decreed that by his intuition it is so. This has been so elevated now before an intoxicated Europe that it looks quite impossible that this new order will not become the order of the day in Thessalonica on the 21st and 22nd, and next year to be formalized in Europe. Supreme power will not now be in the individual nations, but will be handed over to the European Union, and it can never be taken back again. What do I mean by that? It is written into the constitutions that once a nation decides to go into the union, it is irreversible. Under the new constitution rules, no nation will be allowed to secede from the union except by a vote of two-thirds of the majority of member states, except they agree to that secession. So in reality, secession from the Union becomes impossible. An EU attorney will be able to prosecute across border lines crimes that will give the European Union Attorney General far further reaching powers than the present-day United States Justice Department enjoys here in the United States. And this Justice Department in the United States has been encroaching on the state's power for over 200 years. But from the beginning, the Attorney General of the European Union will have far more powers right across Europe than the present power of the Justice Department in the United States. There will be a full-time European president Elected by the Prime Ministers and by a Foreign Minister from different nations. And the European Union will acquire competencies, quotation, in all areas of foreign policy, including progressive framing of a common defense policy. The European Court will acquire vast powers, that will ensure member states are actively and unreservedly in the European's foreign and security policy, and that it is the Union is supreme. Mr. gestard said that the national veto is abolished, including immigration and asylum, and 50 other areas. And there will be a European prosecutor to tackle cross-border crime. The legislative powers of the European Union are set now and about to be confirmed in Thessalonica, in Greece. And to be fully ratified next year in Europe. And so we have a frightening, a frightening political union arising in Europe. It was as if the papacy foresaw this because way back in the time of Pope John the Twenty Third he talked about the new Europe as quotation the greatest Catholic superstate the world has ever known, and more recently the papal nuncio of Brussels has called the European Union a Catholic Confederation of States. With concordats in position, the Catholic Church recognized in civil laws in most nations of the European Union, believers in Poland and in England and in my own Ireland that I spoke to, were getting very apprehensive of what will happen when the new constitution is in force. We already have in the Union, even with present-day law, some churches been closed down in Belgium and in France under the pretext that they are not a church that is recognized by the government, that they are a sect. And these are churches that we would call Bible-believing churches such as our own. But they are more apprehensive that in the days to come, this may more readily be done than at present. And that it will be the police, not the Roman Catholic bishop, that turns up to your door with a notice that the church is to be closed down because it now is considered to be an unloving sect and not a church as is ratified and accepted in the European Union. And so there is this concern right across Europe, and I think it is a concern that we as believers in the United States and elsewhere should be aware of, that we have a legal body that is in its embryo state being set up that can mean a loss of religious freedom for Bible-believing churches that we know. Parliament's main base is not Brussels. It is in Strasbourg, and that is in Strasbourg, France, not Strasbourg, Germany. However, there is a one week in each month that the Parliament holds a plenary session in Brussels, and so we hear Brussels spoke about much more than we do Strasbourg. But Strasbourg is the main parliamentary building of the European Union, and of the European Union that there is to be under the new constitution. It was in December 2000 that Europe opened the doors of the new parliament building in Strasbourg. It had cost $12 million, and it was... It was patterned after the Dutch artist's famous painting of the Tower of Babel. And if you look at pictures of this parliament, and you can see them easily on the internet, it looks quite like a Tower of Babel. And it itself is purposefully left unfinished, as well as the Tower of Babel. The new European Union is therefore built after the pattern of the Tower of Babel. Strasbourg, the city in which it is built, symbolizes the dream of the Franco-German integration that was at the very heart of the Roman Empire called the Holy Roman Empire at the time of Charlemagne. You may remember it was in 772. that Charlemagne set out for 30 years to bring the nations of Europe under his heel. And eventually he did so. And he formalized it all in the year 800 when he knelt at the feet of the Pope in Rome to receive the crown on his head as emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And he brought under his jurisdiction the vast realm of what now comprises France, Switzerland, Belgium, the Netherlands, half of modern-day Italy, Germany, and parts of Austria and Spain. In present-day Europe, believers are fearing that we are again seeing in the European Union what had been in history called the Holy Roman Emperor. The London Sunday Telegraph commented in 1991, quotation, If European Federalism triumphs, EC, now the EU, will indeed have an empire. It will lack an emperor but it will have the Pope." End of quotation. Even this secular newspaper sing the part of the papacy in the modern European Union. The flag of the Union, which you can see on the internet, or if you make any inquiry into the European Union, consists of a blue flag with 12 stars. The 12 stars in Catholic tradition in the halo that surrounded Mary's head. The dome of the present Parliament there is a colossal painting of the woman riding the beast. In the parliamentary offices of the Parliament also there is a huge painting of the woman riding the beast. And those pictures are not something you might like to see because the woman is most part naked. These emblems, for whatever political reason they have been done, are realities, and they appeared also on European postage stamps, like the one issued in Britain in 1984 commemorate the election of the second European Parliament. Whatever are the political reasons behind the Tower of Babel imagery in the Parliament and the graphic portrayal of the woman riding the beast, whatever reason there was politically in having these things typified, biblically, it is quite interesting that we should Study the meaning of the woman and the beast. In scripture, the woman and the beast are revealed in Revelation 17. She is the only city that is also a system or a religion, that is also a infallible institution that has drunk the blood of the saints for over 608 years, whose colors are scarlet and purple, and who sits enthroned, not just on Vatican Hill, but she has physical territories on all seven hills. The primal power of the papacy has been on these seven hills in the course of history from the 8th century and we're coming now from the time of the famous Pepin who gave the first papal states to the Pope to his son Charlemagne in 800 itself right through to the 14th century when the papacy finally reaches its zenith under Boniface VIII, having come through the hands and machinations of Hildebrand and the famous Gregory VII. We had the blending together of civil power with so-called religious power that typifies the Roman Catholic Church. And nowhere is this duplicity better seen than in the handiwork of the Lord in the pages of Scripture in Revelation 17. She is revealed on the pages of Scripture. We know her by the throne that she sits, the beast that she rides, by the cup that she bears, by the name that is blazoned on her forehead, by her political lovers, by her shameless looks, and by her polluted deeds by her prolonged conjectures, her deadly persecution, her massacre of the saints for over 600 years in her horrendous inquisition. And these details are spelled out to us in the Lord's own word in that famous chapter. She rules through a priesthood and a monarchy that she calls infallible. We have here portrayed the papacy in the clarity of the Lord's written word. Now, how does the papacy work? And what will be one of the first things that she will do when the European Union is set up under the new constitution? What has she done with other nations when they are set up when I was in Slovakia in the year 2000, and Slovakia had become an independent nation, separate from the Czech Republic and what it used to be Czechoslovakia, what was one of the first things that the Vatican did? It was to formalize a legal concordat with Slovakia. It was then that the believers in Slovakia told me of their fears because a concordat legalizes the Catholic Church in civil law in a nation whereby its laws can become part of the civil law, its institutions and hospitals and schools become recognized in civil law, its marriages and its annulment of marriages become recognized in civil law, And the Catholic Church has power and clout, not simply as a religious system, but as a political system that she dares to call the Holy See. That is the official name she calls the Vatican when she makes her decrees with the nations. These concordats have been worked out It is not simply the famous concordats that still stands that Pius XII made with Hitler and Mussolini, but it is concordats that have been established right across the world. Prior to 1989, she had made concordats mostly just with European nations. Now she does it with nations across the world, including Asian nations and Islamic nations. She has diplomatic relationships with the nations of the world. And so we will, we will surmise, and I doubt that we will be proven wrong, that one of the first things that will happen when we have the superpower the super state set up that will be the new European Union under the new constitution with its new president, attorney general, and its new legislative and executive powers, that the Vatican will make a civil concordat, because she already has civil concordates with most of the major nations that are represented in the Union. Archbishop Martino, Rome's permanent observer at the United Nations until recently, said formally, as Pope John Paul has stated, within the international community, the Holy See supports every effort to establish effective judicial structures. End of quotation. That summary statement by the Archbishop representative at the United Nations summarizes the mindset of Rome to have judicial agreements binding in civil law. And this is how the Catholic Church worked at the time of the Inquisition. It was always civil power that tortured the believers. It was the civil power that took children from the age of 12 up and had them tortured sometimes to testify against their parents. It was the civil power that burned people for their faith at the stakes. The Vatican works through civil power. And what we are seeing now in Europe is frightening. And if this does not move our hearts to pray for an understanding of what is happening in our own day, I do not know what could. What is happening before our own eyes and that we should be aware of as believers and be aware of so that the gospel could go forth and that we could encourage believers in Europe to give the gospel of Christ Jesus. It was at a time of great decline that we had the Reformation. It was declined politically and spiritually. And the Lord heard the voice of his people. We have now possibly the greatest declension politically and spiritually that Europe has ever seen. And is it not for us at this time of declension to pray that the Holy Spirit will be given and that we would see a real revival amid what looks to be catastrophe for the future for the European Bible believing churches. I pray that our hearts are moved with compassion to preach the gospel to Roman Catholics here and to pray for Europe and to know that God's word will succeed and that there will be victory for the gospel message. For the Lord said that his gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that we trust. But we pray that he who promised that the Holy Spirit would be given would now give it at this age and that first of all we would see the problem if we are to be prayer warriors and if we are to encourage the believers in Europe and that we join them in prayer and in worship before the Holy God to pray that the true gospel may go out and that there would be thousands, if not millions, saved through the praise of the glory of his grace. And so we present the window on Europe, praying that God's might and power may be seen in the European Union that is unveiling before our own eyes. May the Lord be glorified and may the gospel message go out. Amen and amen. Praise God.